0: You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: My mic on. I think we'll. I think we'll go ahead and get started as it's just past uh, eleven o'clock. Thank you all so much for joining us here today for our event. A new approach to leaving no one behind. Um, It's a great challenge for us at ODI as we've been doing so much work on Leave No One Behind to come up with new titles for our (laughs) events, but hopefully we've done it in a way that has successfully enticed uh, a massive show of people to come and join us this morning. We've got about, last time I looked, 227 people watching online as well, so hello to everyone watching. Um, I'll introduce our speakers in a minute. We were hoping to have at least one of our Um, uh, guest speakers in the room with us um, but that's not happened so we are limiting the carbon footprint of this event (laughs) as well by having three of our speakers joining us online so we are going to be a little bit reliant on technology working for us but that should be fine please um, as ever uh, feel very free in fact we actively encourage you to tweet the event hashtag leave no one behind Um, And let's get started. I'm I'm not going to bother explaining or even introducing the concept of leave no one behind and why it's important. I'm going to assume that um, all of you are here because you've already bought into the importance of this as an issue. But I do think it's worth touching on the urgency of why we need action to start on leave no one behind as quickly as possible. Uh, We did some analysis last year at ODI that showed that if countries don't start Delivering on leave no one behind actions and policies within the first thousand days of the SDGs, so that's uh, September 2018, if you want to do the math, then it's going to be pretty much impossible to deliver on this commitment. And I think that's a pretty salutary warning. Time is really of the essence here. We are pushing on to being halfway through that thousand day period. So, you know, again, this is to stress the urgency of this agenda. And this is why with the piece of research that we're launching today, we wanted to take this concept from the, you know, it's been up here, the sort of slightly ephemeral conceptual level of leaving no one behind, and we've wanted to get much more granular, to be very, very specific about what needs to be delivered at the national and, very importantly, the sub-national level, Across different sectors and across different uh, using different instruments, so we've looked. Specific, we've, we've deliberately made this work uh, interdisciplinary. What are the data elements? What are the policy elements? What are the financing elements? And of course, what's the sort of enabling political environment that's going to allow this all to happen and mean that countries can start delivering on on leave no one behind? So we're we're obviously looking at um, the work we've done on health. Today. I will also tell you though that we're launching, so that's the health report, I've got too many things on my knee, that's the health report we're launching today. We have done also a report on leave no one behind on roads in Kenya, so access to rural roads and we're also publishing today um, a methodology because we'd like other people to be undertaking these form of sort of leave no one behind diagnostics so we've published our methodology for how we've done this work and... Uh, We've launched some uh, interactive maps that we should be able to show you now. So you can, um, these will show you various maps looking at health, various uh, health coverage, roads. You'll be able to, there'll be some laptops out uh, around the lunchtime period and you can, I'd encourage you to have a play around and look at these. You'll be able to see work we've done on um, looking at, for instance, uh, coverage of eight different Data uh, uh, health indicators looking at um, access to coverage. The roads map, for instance, will look at the distance of communities to um, the the instance of communities that are five or ten kilometres away from rural or gravel paved roads, and also relating overlaying that with our leave no one behind and roads index. So, is financing getting to where the need is? So, I'll leave you to play around with those at lunchtime and have a little bit look more at them. before we start, I would like to use my chair's privilege just to take a quick show of hands in the room. And if I ask a question, and this is exactly the kind of granular question that we've been asking with our research. If I ask the question, uh, why is it you think that uh, women in rural areas, in developing countries, are not getting access to health care, What would you say is the key impediment? Can you show me who would say it's the government lacking data? Can you put your hand up if you think it's data is the key impediment to women in rural areas not getting access to healthcare? Okay, that's around zero for for data. Who think it's um, an old-fashioned resource question? This is about government having a lack of resources. A couple of hands over there. Okay, not many. Who thinks it's about politics, and specifically local politics? You've had your hand up twice, sir, over there. <laughs> OK, more people. Who thinks it's all of the above? OK, pretty much everyone. OK, I will reveal with you the uh, results. We had, we had a Twitter poll that, looked, that asked the same questions, and you'll see, you'll see the answers that we had. they actually very similar to the number of people in the room. Right, well, we're going to get into... We're going to unpack all these questions in this session... Let me, um, let me move next to introducing uh, the speakers. If we could start with um, Maita Jamangani. Can we get Maita up? Can we make sure Maita's... so we can see and say hello? Right, she's the largest screen in the room. Um, Maita is the National Director of the Gender and Sexual Diversity Network in Zimbabwe. She's a long-time grassroots activist on these issues and she's also working at connecting civil society and policymakers, and making sure that issues of poverty and inequality are um, visible, among um, marginalised people, are visible to those groups. So thank you very much for joining us, Maita. Can you say hello so we know you can, we can hear you and you can hear us? Can we say hello? We'll say, we'll say hello later. Okay. Um, next, we're joined by Isabella Maina, who is... I hope Isabel can hear <laughs> and see us as well. Head of the Health Sector uh, Monitoring and Evaluation Unit at the Ministry of Health in Kenya. Can you say hello?
2: They've got
1: their microphones on mute. They're all muted. Okay, we'll say hello to you later. That's okay, we'll say hello Hi. later. Hi. Hello. There we are. And then we have Mamadou Dutore, who you can see there, um, who was going to be joining us in person and now can't. And he's the Poverty Research Director for uh, the think tank... Development initiatives, and he's joining us from Nairobi this morning. Um, and he's waving. Thank you, Mamadou. Um,
3: hi, everyone.
1: Ah, hi there. Good, we've got a good line to you. Let me start by, if we can start by coming to you, Maita. Um, I think it's really helpful to start the conversation by grounding this in a reminder of why this issue is important at the national level and at the community level. And Maita's going to just give us a very quick reminder of why this is the case. We got her? Can you unmute?
4: Okay, you need to
1: unmute Maita. Can we hear you? No, okay, we'll, com- we'll come back to that. That's okay, we'll come back to that. Let me, let me instead move to my colleague Olivia Tullock um, who I haven't yet introduced. So Olivia is a Research Fellow in our uh, Politics and Governance Programme and is also an expert on community health and community health systems. And Olivia, I'm going to start by asking you to briefly present uh, your research and then I'm going to ask you some questions on that. Can we have I think
4: have got a slide. OK. Um. By way of presenting our findings, I thought we could have a story um, just to to bring alive the the realities of some of the people that we encountered in our research. Um, And uh, I'm going to use the story of a young lady called Grace. She's photographed uh, in the middle of that picture with her baby and one of her female relatives. Uh, And her experience is not an unusual one for a rural, uh, Kenyan woman, um, and the types of barriers that she faced in accessing healthcare could equally be faced by a rural woman in another county of Kenya or even uh, in a rural part of Nepal, which is the other country where we undertook this research. Uh, so I'm going to co- focus on just one type of vulnerability today. There's no way we can cover them all. So that's of a poor rural woman. Now, Knowing that, Kenya, that that Grace is like many uh, Kenyan women in her <coughs> situation, we invited her to join us in a focus group discussion uh, to try and find out what the issues were that she faced in accessing healthcare. So she and a lot of her friends and other community members came along and had a chat with us. Um, she lives in a remote village, looking rather like the one you see in the photograph on the left-hand side. And uh that village has no road leading to it, and it is far from the nearest town. It is a Maasai community, so she is of an ethnic minority. She has quite a harsh life, but not a not an unpleasant one, you know. They, 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 we were looking at people who struggled financially and had a low cash economy, but had plenty of food, plenty of goats, they were had meat, milk, they drank blood for, as one of their sources of protein. Um, it might sound surprising to some of us, but that's uh, one of the drinks of choice. <laughs> um, now, Grace has four children, she's 26 years old-ish, she's not quite sure, she has no ID. And without that ID, she's also not able to access many of the services that other people would be entitled to access. Um, She's probably going to have quite a lot more children too because she has no birth control and is a little bit confused by it because nobody's ever really explained it to her. Now there's no road to the place where Grace could go to give birth to her children. She would need to walk there and one of the people that we interviewed said you just need to look at the road network Are you able to walk 25 kilometers to the health center, or do you slaughter a goat and ask a witch doctor to take away the bad spirits? And that was a typical sort of experience that we heard about when listening to women's experiences of of what they felt about about, uh, going to receive uh, healthcare services. Um, Now, politicians know about this, and they they try to do things uh, about it, so we heard that very close to where Grace lives. It's a new dispensary. It was built a couple of years ago. There's a picture of it there in the far distance, right in the middle of nowhere. Um, But unfortunately, nobody has ever gone to that facility to work there. There are no drugs. There's no equipment. It has never been opened. So the place where she should be going to get health care is not available. And the place that she could go to get health care looks something like this. This is one of the health centres that we visited, Uh, There is a very committed nurse there on the left saying look at where I have to work There's not even a fence to keep out the stray dogs Um, And she showed us around her health facility and said here on the right-hand side is our labor ward Now you can see in that labor ward. There's a large pile of mosquito nets which were kindly uh, donated by the American government and all sorts of other uh, bits of equipment, but certainly nothing that you would need in order to give birth. So you can see why Grace might decide that the best option for her is to give birth at home. So that's just a quick snapshot to introduce the sorts of experiences that women in a remote part of Kenya face. Great. Right.
1: Can you, um, I mean, famously, whenever we talk about leaving no one behind issues, the, 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 the number one problem that comes up time and time again is data availability, particularly Uh, availability of disaggregated data disaggregated to the appropriate level that we need to be able to do any kind of analysis can you talk us through the kind of data a you know where you found the data so the Mm. kind of data that you were using for the study and also just some of the key findings in terms of who was being left behind in terms of access to health
4: so we looked at two main types of data that was financial data and also health <laughs> coverage data. So we looked at the Demographic Health Survey and also a measure called the Composite Coverage Index, which is a w, uh, World Health Organization <coughs> measure to look at uh, some of the uh, services that uh, people are able to access. So it's a, it's a, it's a co- sort of proxy measure of of health service coverage and... Uh, we were using it like a proxy for universal health coverage. Mm-hmm. So we looked at those two sources, of those two types of data. Um, and one of the things that we found was that, um, A, that the data isn't collected really frequently enough for us to have an accurate picture of what things are like right now, but also um, that uh, it's. That the data that is being collected is not giving us <coughs> necessarily a full picture, so we know that uh, where a lot of exclusion lies, but what we weren't unab- what we weren 't able to identify is uh, some of the pockets of exclusion so we know that some counties have very poor uh, health service coverage but others have quite good coverage but within the county that might have good health service coverage there might be real pockets of of neglect which just are not adequately represented in the data Um, that's that's one of the issues we found with with the sort of health data with the financial side we were able to see that the there are some very progressive policies in place to allocate financial resources to the people that need it most. Um, but quite often, those are uh, not quite getting to the people that, that need them because we don't know exactly where the people are. And there were some sort of political machinations that meant that it wasn't always getting through. OK. Perhaps we
1: can come back to the political machinations yeah. question later because that's fascinating. But Can you talk... I mean, Kenya... Now, in com- I mean, Kenya already had a pre-existing commitment for, around uh, universal health coverage. Now, of course, all countries have signed up to UHC as a as a commitment as part of the SDGs. Can you talk us through some of the kind of trade offs that you had found in your research that were having to be uh, done, made, carried out, mm-hmm. whatever you do with a trade off, to be able to, to you know get as far towards UHC as they're getting.
4: It's a really important question because we do see that, that, that in both of the countries that we looked at, there are very clear <laughs> commitments on paper and in, in things that are being enacted in policies within the constitutions um, and various other frameworks which, have, which show real recognition to a commitment to vulnerable people who are not getting the services that they need. But um, these are the people who are most difficult to reach. If we look at vulnerable communities they are they live far away from uh, from health centers it 's very expensive to get health services to the places where they are uh, and they um, the sorts of services that they need just primary health care are are expensive to deliver um, in those places. And so we heard from several of our, really from a lot of our respondents, particularly in in the second country we went to, which was Nepal, that the low hanging fruit has been picked. So all of the quick, easy gains in health service delivery in terms of primary health care, have been uh, achieved in in a really impressive way in quite a short time. There have been great progress towards the, let's say, the Millennium Development Goals. But the Sustainable Development Goals are all about getting to those people who are not easy to access. And so it's about having to choose to throw money at, at getting services to those sorts of people against other types of health services for other people. And and that was a real issue. That particularly people in the NGO sector said governments are going to struggle to justify this. It's a lot of money to benefit a small number of people mm. remaining.
1: And just to be clear, then who 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 had they chosen to prioritise? I mean, we'll come to um, Isabella and the Ministry of Health later to well, to,
3: to, I, to get I her response.
1: But but yeah, who who is getting the benefit and who isn't? Well,
4: certainly, um, there are. There's suggestion that those people are being prioritised, but. But is it enough? I think that's right, the question. Okay, is it okay. really going so far it's question enough? question
1: of adequacy of resources as well. Yeah. And if I could, I mean, going back to our Twitter poll and our show of hands, if I had to ask you the, you know, what was the key bottleneck? I mean, you've mentioned some of them sort of um, in, in quite general terms, but if you had to identify one key bottleneck, what would that be? Oh, goodness. Well, I would say
4: probably adequacy of resources, <laughs> I'm, g- I'm going to answer them all in one again, but I think I would say resources, <coughs> because if you don't have enough staff, if you can't pay for the staff to, to be delivering services in those places, then it's a non-starter, okay. so yeah. Okay,
1: great, well, we'll come back to more about but the, the study. Don't,
4: I don't like answering that question at all, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a well, we'll, it's a really we'll, a tough we'll, one. We can come back to it
1: later because I'm sure there'll be more yeah. questions about this, probably. Um I'd like to turn now to bring in um, Isabella. Um, from the From the Ministry of health uh, I mean Isabella do you, do you recognize that I mean we 've talked about the commitments that you have at the policy level to, to UHC and actually the, you know that there's actually compared to plenty of other countries um, a relatively would you agree with that a sort of relatively um, progressive oh, yeah. um, financing financial formula <laughs> so why would you say it 's not happening do you do you recognize the bottlenecks that olivia's just identified, or, or or have we missed something? What what is what's the reality that you're having to 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 live with?
5: Okay, thank you, thank you, Olivia, for that brief. Um, yes, as you say, there's progressive uh, financial formula for allocation of resources, and this is based on the constitution on the constitution of Kenya. There's uh, equity in allocation of resources, because the constitution says at least 15% of the national budget must go to the counties. And then for the counties that are marginalized, there's equalization funds to make them come up to the level of of the others, uh, so to speak. And if we come close to health, there's a lot that has happened in terms of um, allocation to the counties. We've seen progressive increase in resources, but as she has rightly put it, um, we are still yet to get there, but there are attempts and um, strategies that have been put in place, especially in health services. We now have, uh, in terms of removing financial barriers uh, to access to services, especially for the poor, we, uh, the government has removed user fees at the primary care facilities. And these are facilities that are by and large utilized by uh, the minorities or the people in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that has happened is removal of uh, maternity fee so that deliveries or maternity services in public health sub- uh, facilities are free. And the government is also working towards ensuring that these services are also extended to non-governmental organ- uh, facilities and also to private facilities. Uh? And also revamping our national insurance um, firm, the NHIF, the National Health Insurance uh, Fund, to make sure that they are covering not just the formal sector, because initially they were covering the formal sector, but now extending to cover the informal sector and also extending the, the package from inpatient cover to cover also the outpatient Uh, And that would mean because the primary care facilities where the minorities and marginalized groups usually access care only offer outpatient services. So that would mean that previously, when NHIF was only covering the inpatient services, such groups were not able to reach uh, such financial cover. So there are lots of efforts, uh, but I would say that finances are not enough. There are disparities as much as um, the allocation is, a minimum of 15% to each counties, the counties are now entities. They're autonomous entities. And therefore they also have their own formula of allocating resources. So you will still find disparities within counties. Yeah, As much as they receive a minimum of 15% from the national government, we, the counties all have the decision, they make the decision as to how much they allocate to health. So if you look across the 47 counties, you'll find disparities so that there are some counties in the last four years that have progressed in terms of financial allocation. There are some that maybe are allocating the same amount that the national government was allocating pre-devolution. There are others that maybe the rate of increase has been so slow. So there are all these multifactors, uh, multiple factors um, that are barriers. Correct. Thank you. That's thank in terms you. of finances. But of course, there are many other bottlenecks.
1: Okay, thank you. And again, we may come back to some of those other bottlenecks. Later as well, I, I wanted to bring in um, Mamadou Mamadou Toure here. I mean, I mean, first of all, were you surprised by our findings and did we miss anything? But but, and I can ask Mamadou that because he was one of the reviewers of the of, of the study, so it's a fair question. But secondly, I wanted to ask, I, I, I want to go back to the data issue and ask you about citizen-generated data or other forms of unofficial data. What's the status of, of that kind of data in, in, in Kenya at the moment? Is it in a state where it can be used by policymakers, by researchers, by civil society to identify marginalized groups and, uh, and track progress, or is, there, is, it, not, is it not there yet?
3: Uh, thank you, Liz. I, I think what I liked about this study is, first of all, uh, the data source that was used, which is DHS data. Um, it's perhaps the best we can use for this sort of study. Um, I know, uh, some of my colleagues would prefer, um, a sort of joined up, uh, DHS mix data, uh, which would still give more information, but mix would mainly focus on women and children. And these are adequately covered in the DHS data. I also like the reference to a framework, the CCI framework which uh, really is a good cover of uh, health um, health issues as far as um, a poverty perspective is concerned Mm -hmm. in kenya at the moment there is a lot of hype on citizen generated data and uh, one of the qualities of uh, citizen generated data is that it helps to hold um, decision makers to account it is not um, as technical and um, malleable as official data, but it does bring out people's perspectives, particularly uh, in a situation where, for instance, in Kenya, they do, they do a lot of service delivery surveys. These delivery surveys can definitely be uh, a way, a tool for monitoring whether uh, health outcomes or health inputs have been uh, sufficient to meet the needs of people, and whether the outcomes are up to scratch as far as inputs are concerned. Yes, I would say citizen-generated data is, um, has a lot of future in this type of work, and I think it is suitable uh, for, mon- for holding digital makers to account. Where it is failing at the moment is its compatibility with official data so that it is easily taken on board on uh, national statistical platforms. And I think that's one big challenge that the leave no one behind agenda uh, yeah. puts before us yeah,
1: yeah. okay uh, okay that's very very interesting perspective to hear and and interesting I think particularly from Kenya because along with other countries like for instance the Philippines I think it's it's a place where citizen generated data is relatively advanced so it's it's interesting to hear that perspective um, Maitre, I'm I'm going to bring you in now I'm sorry I'm sorry we couldn't we couldn't hear you earlier. Um, maybe you can bring give us start your, your response to my question by by giving us your story on why why it's important that we're asking these questions. But I'd also like to hear from you whether the sort of the bottlenecks and the challenges in terms of marginalized groups getting access to healthcare that we've heard about today. Does this resonate for you? Is this similar in, at community level in Zimbabwe? Uh, are you facing similar challenges? Are there similar bottlenecks? Is it something else? I think it's interesting for us to start to get a sense of how sort of scalable these lessons are, how much these are shared uh, difficulties and issues um, in the re- from elsewhere, other countries in the region.
2: Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Can you hear me now? I
1: can hear you, yeah.
2: Right, Uh, the leave no one behind discussion that we are having today is very, very important and very close to my heart. First, I will start with the Constitution of Zimbabwe, states in chapter 76, section one, that every citizen of Zimbabwe has the right to access basic health care service, but that is not for everyone. LGBT persons are considered illegal dogs, pigs, insects, but certainly not human. Let me give you a personal experience. Last year, my partner and I decided to go for a voluntary HIV testing and counseling center after we decided that we wanted to take our relationship to the next level. Um, when we got there, we went we went through the registration process which involves uh, providing pseudonyms and we waited there and finally when we got to the testing uh and counseling room we met a motherly figure and she described to us the procedure including the issues of confidentiality transparency and honesty for us to get the right care and support so we decided It was okay to open up and be transparent and tell her about the nature of our same-sex relationship and sexual history. But well, it turned out differently. She was unforgiving. She told us we could not continue with the service. She told us because it was against her ethics, against her nature, against the laws of Zimbabwe. She told us she was going to call the authorities immediately. She banged the door and she left. We could not wait. We ran for our lives. We knew we could face a jail term and we're not going to get tested and we're not even going to access any healthcare service, even if the constitution says we have the right to healthcare. We are in desperate need of global solidarity to put pressure on our African governments so that they can be accountable for LGBT persons, so that no one is left behind. Thank you.
1: Can I, can I, can I just press you on why? So I mean, the, the thing that your story very starkly sets out for us is that there's a normative issue here, that it's sort of culturally um, a discrimination that that you, as a margin, somebody coming from a marginalised group, that you are. Um, living on a, on a day-to-day basis are there other also other sort of structural issues that you've identified are there other reasons that you've identified in the communities that you work with why people are not getting access to healthcare? is it is it is it just manifesting itself at the cultural level which meet and political social level which means then presumably that financing um, isn't coming that um, there isn't the sort of political will to um, deliver access to health care into, into other marginalised, into rural community areas? Are there other, other reasons as well?
2: Uh, the, the, the problem, Elizabeth, I think that um, those uh, the issue of data is very important because those that are making uh, decisions at a policy level do not have data that explains and and. and and uh, show them the burden and the inequalities and injustice that's, that we face as LGBTI people because we are considered uh, as illegal and therefore non existent.
1: Thanks very much. Okay, so that, I think that discussion has opened up really qu- quite a lot of issues that, that have interestingly spanned the kind of areas that we were, our conceptual framework for the study uh, started looking at. So there is the data issue. There are cultural issues, political issues, and then financing issues as well. I'd like to open this up to you now for your questions for any of the panellists. Um, If you could um, keep it to a question rather than a comment, please, so we can fit as, as many in as possible. And if you could give your name and where you're from as well. And please, for the On Your Line audience, I've got the iPad. If you could submit questions as well, we'll take... We'll take questions from you and I'll take questions um, in a couple of groups as well. So if you could please put your hand up if you have a question for any of the panellists, either on the study or the responses or what we've heard about the specifics of the Kenyan and um, uh, Zimbabwean situation of access to healthcare. Let's start. Let's start the woman with the stripe jumper. Um,
4: My name is Bronwyn Manby. I'm a visiting fellow at the Centre for Human Rights at the LSE. Um, I was intrigued by the comment from Kenya about the, the woman saying that one of her issues was lack of an ID. I've done quite a, a lot of work on that issue in Kenya about discrimination, access to ID, and I'd be interested to, to know what the conclusions are of the study in general about that type of issue. Recognition as Kenyan, as a citizen, as a
2: primary question, and then secondarily, even if you are recognised as a citizen, how do you get the ID, and what, yeah. how does that impact on these other questions?
1: Okay. Um, the man in the front blue sweater.
6: Oh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name's John Gibb, and uh, I used to work in, in development. Um, I've just got one question for uh, the... Olivia. Uh, Olivia. Um, to, uh, and then, which is about the, um, the health centre that you um, focused on a bit. Um, and I'm just interested to know who paid for it, why was it put there, and... Hmm has anything else happened or does it just sit there but my main point and contribution to the debate is uh, you've you've all uh, people talk about financing and people don't seem to want to talk about financing but uh, in in the run-up to this whole stg escapade uh, there was a lot of work done looking at you know financing requirements financing gaps and all this sort of thing where and the numbers are just fantastic they're mind-boggling so I'd be very interested for, to know where people think that money's going to come from. Um, I think I know, but I'm just interested to know whether anybody else has got an idea, because all the standard routes are, you know, they've been pretty well played out, and since 2008, you know, the amount of available resources, concessional or otherwise, for, for development is, is really in retreat. So it's, it's a big challenge. Thanks.
1: Great. Any other? Well, I'm taking questions from this part of the room there. <coughs>
6: Thanks very much. I'm Rob Yates from, from Chatham House. And I'd like to ask the panellists, please. Um, we hear a lot of talk about political commitment to universal health coverage, and all the presidents have signed up to it on two or three occasions now. Um, but it would appear from budget allocations that that, that that political commitment isn't being met. I think the Kenya, the health budget, shares about 4% of the government budget, and in Zimbabwe, I think you know, roughly 6%. So I, I was just wondering really how um, civil society activists are Trying to put pressure on their governments to increase the, the health budget share as a sort of a genuine sign that there is increased um, commitment and how we can potentially help them do that.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much for a nice nice crop of questions, um, Isabella. If you don't mind, can I turn to you first um, just to get your answers on um, well the budget allocation question? If you could, if you could speak to that, um, but also your sense of. From, from the Ministry of Health's perspective in general, what, your sense of, you know, where are the additional flows? Where are you looking to them to come from? Where do you think the likely sources are?
5: Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, I would say from Kenya, there's a lot of commitment from the government to universal health coverage and also to financing. Yeah? If you look at the report, the detailed report, you'll see progressive increase and this is basically because of the legal framework that we have, the constitution. I said earlier that it talks about fifteen percent minimum allocation to the counties. That over the last year, three years, has increased actually from fifteen to around thirty-two. I'm not so sure of the current figure, uh, but if you look at the absolute allocation to the county health uh, to the county budget, there's a lot of increase. If we break down to the counties, counties are also allocating much more in health to this uh, to to their health system than what they used to receive when we were one uh, national government. So there's absolute increase. And if you look at the political commitments, our president, our deputy president, the cabinet is always talking about universal health coverage, including uh, lobbying from the county level by the governors, by the, uh, the community, because community participation is now a constitutional right that communities must must participate in budget making for for the counties. So there is that increase. Apart from that, there are efforts to increase through various strategies. I talked about the free maternity. I talked about the free services at the primary care facilities. I'm also talking about the conditional grants that go to the, the big level facilities, our referral facilities to sort of compensate counties for giving services to other counties because these facilities are usually referral for regions rather than from uh, one county. Uh, We've talked about NHIF uh, reforms. We've seen a lot of uh, resources allocated by the national government, that's the central government, to the vulnerable groups. We have health insurance subsidies for social protection and this targets the elderly, uh, the orphans and the vulnerable groups uh, generally. And over the last two years, and this has been This is something I know the president really follows. About over half a million Kenyans have been covered. Close to half a million Kenyans have been covered on this. Those over 60 years plus, the children and the orphans. Now, looking at where the the extra budget will come from, there are a lot of efforts also, apart from what is allocated from the national government, to ensure that also counties are allocating from what they generate from the county reserve. And I think the most important thing is about efficiency. Efficiency in use of the resources that we have. Uh, Basically the the money and also other resources. I think uh, in many countries, not just Kenya, um, the finances would take us a little bit, uh, maybe with more outputs, uh, but because of inefficiencies, we've seen that the health outputs that we get from what we put in is not what we'd expect. So, um, this is also constitutional and this is something that uh, governments uh, in the various counties and also at the national level are really emphasizing. And also with citizens, there's a lot of um, citizen participation asking governments to be more accountable, asking governments to be uh, efficient in use of uh, resources. And it's not just, it's not just for government. Also, at the service delivery point, there's a lot of emphasis, for example, at the hospital level, if I use the hospitals as an example, to use the resources that we have uh, efficiently. So I think for me, I'm not looking at increasing in terms of absolute uh, figure or the absolute amount of uh, finances, but rather the amount that we have, how much are we uh, churning out in terms of output?
1: That's realistic then. Do you think that you can achieve UHC, a genuine UHC commitment for all, you know, including the most vulnerable, marginalised communities with those increased efficiencies?
5: We will not achieve 100%, but it's, uh, it's a strategy towards achieving. Because we live in a world of scarce resources, and uh, the question we need to ask ourselves is how much are we producing with what we already have? If we produce enough with what we have, then we move to the next step of allocation. And then there's also an, uh, a question of redistribution of what exists. Yeah. Thank okay. you.
1: Did you want to speak to the ID question as well, or I can pass that on to...
5: Um, ID, maybe my my colleague will assist okay. me, but the attempt I'll make is that... Um, Usually, we almost have universal coverage uh, in terms of access to IDs. But uh, if we look at uh, the communities we have in the marginalized areas, there's a lot of interplays of factors. Eh? Education uh, coming in, education of women, and you know, education of the community, community generally. So that you find that in the less educated areas, uh, people will not have access to such services despite them being close uh, to them so i think that it's an interplay of many factors okay. and if we look back education is also tied to the geographical allocation of such areas poor hard to reach yeah. areas low education and it's followed by multiple factors as Okay. Uh, such as access to services like ID, health services and others. Okay. I would associate that to that, yeah.
1: Let me thank bring... You. Thank you very much for that, Isabella. Very, very interesting and comprehensive answer. Um, Mamadou, can I bring you in on the ID question that Bromwyn had asked?
3: Well, I think um, the ID question, we can look at it from a broader CRVS uh, perspective. Why is it so important? Because it is... Uh,
1: and vital statistics. And vital you know, statistics,
3: really statistics. yes. It's, why is it so important? Because it is how people are identified. The whole uh, question of uh, leaving no one behind is about counting people and not working on averages. And if people are not counted, if they're, if they're not registered, if they're not identifiable somewhere, they can hardly ever have access to... Uh, to any resources or to any services. And then the question was, so that's about working where
1: working in Kenya. If you could talk a bit about how that's functioning in Kenya.
3: Yes, Kenya has a couple of social protection programs, which provide vital statistics uh, and registry information on individuals. The problem is that it's not yet comprehensive, and these are tied to specific social protection programs. Uh, The Leave No One Behind um, agenda requires that everyone is registered and that data on people's needs is generally across the board available for everyone. I'm just listening to the discussion. I know there is a lot of um, um, focus on the financial part, but what the LNOB agenda is bringing is to say beyond the financial part, we can keep increasing the financial packages that we put to these poverty programs. But so long as we are not targeting it properly to those people who are, who are at risk of being left behind, yeah. we will not achieve the 2030 uh, objectives.
1: Without wanting to sound like Donald Rumsfeld, do you have any idea of the proportion of people who aren't covered at the moment, who don't have, who don't have um, ID? Do we, is there a known unknown? In, in Kenya. In Kenya?
3: In Kenya? Yeah. No. It would be a rough guess, and what,
1: uh, what's of, that guess? of one out of three. Okay. okay. One out of three, so that's probably. So still pretty significant number of people then not having access to that. Okay. Let me bring Olivia in. The question of the, the, the health centre. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Why, what?
4: Yeah. I, I just would like to, before we get to that, have a quick reflection on the ID issue, which is yeah. I do think it's improving because... It's something that we uh, learned from our our focus group discussions is that while uh, mothers may not be registered for healthcare, they are registering their children. So they might give birth at home, but some of them are taking their children because they know that they should get them vaccinated. And that's something that in many places they recognize. And in order to get the vaccination, you need to be registered. So there are some... Uh, areas of improvement on, on that, so that was just a quick follow on um, in terms of that health center that you that you mentioned it 's not uncommon to see empty uh, health centers' dispensaries um, in, in not only in Kenya but in, in other countries too and what we learned from our respondents was that at election time, your local MP will materialize um, and he will say, ah, um, I I think a health center is is what you need, is that people say they want health services and so it's a vote winner. So that will be a reason to build a health center The money for it, I think you asked how it was paid for, the money for this particular one came from a local development fund. So it was a ward development fund that that sometimes, that's not always the way they're funded, but that's how that one was funded. So uh, a local government mechanism. Um, And why was it put there? Well, yes, you saw it was in the middle of nowhere, but it had quite a large catchment population because there are a lot of people living in those... Uh, rather empty-looking places, who are pastoralists and ha- who have a need for, for healthcare. So it wasn't entirely absurd that there was a health centre there, and there was there was a school that was being used, not very far away too. But um, th- the thing that was, of course, absurd was that after the election um, and and the initial investment, uh, this MP had uh, disappeared and, and not. Fulfilled the rest of his his commitment.
1: Um, Maite, can I bring you? There was a question about the role of civil society in this. Can I can I bring you in on for your perspectives on that? But do do come in on any of the other questions as well? I I don't know if you had any reflections on the ID question in in um, Zimbabwe too.
2: Yeah, th- thank you, Elizabeth. Um, uh, from a Zimbabwean uh, perspective I think civil society has been trying uh, but uh, the challenges always are the um, are the laws that are in place so it is difficult at the end of the day for them to reach to uh, the government to the policy makers and at the same time the uh, the issue of funds has been a problem so that programmes are carried from community level uh, uh, with enough funds all the way to the top level. Can,
1: can, I, can I just ask you a, a sort of a supplementary question which I think relates to actually the question that it was John, wasn't it, was yeah. asking. Do you really think, I mean you, you sound like you're a little bit sceptical about, skeptical about the SDGs and, and leave no one behind, but related to your question and, and what you were saying earlier, Mike, and what you've just said, do you think, you know, you say it's a, a problem is the law? Do you think that the sort of external pressure of the SDGs and that within that the commitment to leave no one behind, the fact that, you know, everybody's signed up to it, other countries in the region have signed up to it, this may create maybe some sort of competition between countries at the region to be within the region to be achieving the goals and delivering on leave no one behind. Do you what what's your sense because I think we assume that there's going to be sort of a pressure. This is going to, you know, the theory of change is that there's going to be an external pressure that will um, strengthen your hand as activists, and that there will be pressure on the government then to um, repeal these kind of uh, these kind of laws which are so discriminatory. Do you think that's true, or do you think we're being um, too optimistic or idealistic about it?
2: Uh, thank you. I I think that. Yes, the, the Sustainable Development Goals has really put pressure on our governments and given us an upper hand as activists to, to try and address these issues, but that, that doesn't mean that um, those stubborn, the stubborn laws have been forgotten. They, the government still hide behind those laws uh, so that they don't account for marginalised communities like the LGBT community.
1: That might change. Do you, are you optimistic that that might change, or you, you're not seeing any prospect for that to, to, to change?
2: Yes, yes, that that might change with uh, global supporting global pressure. I think that might change definitely.
1: Okay, that's 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 very encouraging to hear. Um, let's let's take another round of questions. I've had a couple of questions from the online audience, so I'll I'll, I'll read those out to start with. Um, Elsa Remtula from the, from Stop AIDS is asking, uh, Kenya is now a middle income country. And some donors are considering reducing or withdrawing support. How might this affect access for marginalised groups? And what can donor governments do to ensure access even beyond the period of their financial support? I think it's a very interesting question. And then second question, Shaquille Ahmad from from the LSE wants to ask, what are the lessons from the 15% allocation that, um, Isabella, you were talking about earlier, from the 15% allocation criteria to counties? Many counties have such allocation criteria, but either they're not implemented wholeheartedly or money isn't used on the most needed thing or it's wasted because of administrative uh, inefficiencies or corruption. Has the study looked into these issues? Actually, let, let, let's, let's start with... Um, actually, no, before I do that, I've just had another question pop in. We'll, we'll take three. Fiona Clark from DFID. In order to truly reach the hardest to reach... What are the experiences of mobile clinics and outreach services to reach rural populations, as well as older and frail or housebound people? Let, let me start, Olivia, with you with the question on the study. What did the study look? Um, did we? Did you look at that? Um, uh, what happened to them? To the allocation criteria, and then if you had any reflections on mobile clinics, I don't know outreach services. If that's anything you you came across,
4: uh, on the. On the allocation to uh, counties, and I wonder also if if our finance colleagues also want to to chip in here, but very quickly, um, we did see real conflict um, at local government level on uh, how funds should be allocated and whether or not... uh, Allocating funds to, to the health sector was the be, was the best use of resources, and that while the allocation may have been there in to to, to, to follow, that um, at community level people would be going to their members of the county assemblies and saying, but we need roads, and, that, and and that's where you should be focusing your money more than health, and and we will vote for you if you will uh, in, in, ensure that the roads are being built, and that that was that the health was almost secondary to that. So mm-hmm. health is a priority, but not always the biggest one. For community members, that influences allocation too. Do
1: you, do you want to bring in Romilly? We have a um, microphone over here. So Romilly's an ODI fellow um, who looks not an
0: ODI. at... I was an ODI... research <laughs> fellow, not an ODI, ODI
1: fellow, who's contributed to this report. Yeah. Um, thank you. Just
0: a couple. I might actually take the question on aid uh, trends as yeah. well. I mean, in thinking of the, the, the national and county level spending, we've got a graph in the report that shows, and I think Isabella talked about this as well, that actually overall health spending has gone up quite dramatically since devolution, um, which implies that counties are deciding to spend a higher proportion of their budgets on health uh, than the central government um, has. I think this issue of the sort of... the in the uh, different sectors and you know to improve health do you spend something do you spend money on health Or do you spend money on roads so that people can get to health centres? I think that's actually a really critical thing that we struggled a bit with the study. And, I mean, this links to the sort of wider, more integrated approach of the SDGs. But I think we're struggling a little bit methodologically about, you know, you could say, well, we need to spend money on everything. We've got to spend it on education so that women are better educated and can help children and so on. So, I mean, I think the local-level perspective is really helpful in this respect. Um, But broadly, we did see uh, more health spending. I think that this question about the donor trends, um, I think that's a really big issue, and it's a really big issue in Kenya. It's not only about getting less aid, it's also about getting less concessional financing, and we're seeing countries like Kenya having financing strategies that say we will put grant money into social sectors and we will put um, less concessional money into areas where we can get a higher rate of return, like energy. That's a very sensible approach, but it's going to be a real challenge going forward in the context of declining uh odour flows to many of these countries so I think we really need to think about you know what support can be provided because I think you know it's not just about money um, but actually if we see declining odours to someone like Kenya I think it's going to have a really uh, big impact
1: mm. thank you can I Olivia can I come back to you the question on I don't know whether this is something you looked at mm. sort of outreach services and mobile clinics to reach those really hard to access populations I think it's
4: one of several ways that can make a really big difference and it was actually something that uh, came up more in in Nepal, wasn't it, than 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 I think it did in Kenya.
1: Am I? We're looking yeah. at both we, Sorry, <laughs> looking, looking at my colleague with nothing. Um,
4: but I think in uh, to to complement things like outreach and and mobile clinics, which uh, yes can have a, an important impact, but have their own challenges. Are things like community health workers, which? Um, in both Kenya and in Nepal, they have community health worker programs. Um, the one in Kenya has... It's been <coughs> revitalized, and I think that's that's a very good thing. But what's vital about that sort of, uh, let's say, health worker cadre is that they're like an interface between communities and the health system. So they can manage things like health promotion. So people are aware about... Uh, things like the importance of vaccination and 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 interlinking that with issues of of, uh, having uh, an id Um, and also that they can take the voice of the community to the health system and get that voice heard and bring the health system to the community too and do basic curative things they can be really effective they can be relatively cheap. They're not that, I mean, you have to pay them something, but, but they're, they're cheaper than, than some of the more professional cadres of health workers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another way of really getting to the most remote places, um, if you have one or two in every community.
1: Thank you. Um, can I bring Isabella in on the, the, the question about the 15% allocation To counties, is is that something you you? I mean, you talked about a little bit more. Do you want to reflect on this question? Add any more details, or are you happy with the answer you've given?
5: Okay, uh, thank you once again. As I said, the 15% minimum allocation to the counties it has gone up to 32. We've seen that progressive increase. But the question, the most important question, is that even if counties are increasing allocation to health where is that money being spent? And um, uh, we don't have hard data, but uh, from supervision reports and all that, most of these um, finances goes to capital projects. And I think colleague there has given an example of roads. And and perhaps is uh, it's a social thing because um, most of those people allocating money at the county level, uh, the members of county assemblies where the money is voted and all that, are... Politicians, and for them to earn votes, sorry, to say most of them want tangible. They want uh, capital projects so that uh, the vote, as we'll see, there's also a lot of political interference in terms of allocation of uh, resources. So that you find that um, even if the absolute figure has gone up, maybe it's gone up to build dispensaries that don't have health workers. Uh, But this, again, varies from county to counties. Of course, there are counties that are allocating money to recurrent expenditure, making sure that we have commodities, uh, making sure that uh, we have health workers. So it varies from county to counties, but by and large, some counties are going to capital investments. Uh, There's also this thing of um, focusing more on curative services uh, than preventive. Uh, As much as we have uh, the community health strategy, With the community health workers, community units, community village uh, committees, uh, most of the budget goes to uh, the high-level facilities. That's what we call level fours, the hospitals, uh, such that in the lower facilities, you'll find very uh, few resources in terms of human, uh, in terms of the infrastructure and and all that. So I think um, the study could go further and, and bundle where uh, this money is going to.
1: Can, can I just ask a supplementary question? Which is, you, you mentioned, you know, the role of politics. You, you know, explicitly brought this up, and the role of politicians in this and politics. It'd be really interesting to understand how, what was sort of, what was the, um, what was the drive behind Kenya making those progressive, leave no one behind type commitments in the first place, such as the commitment to UHC. Or in the road study, where we looked at uh, colleagues who, who who wrote the road study, also I identified, of course, this commitment that everybody lived within two kilometres of a road. I mean, you have those "leave no one behind" type policies already in place. What were the, what was the, what what were the politics? How did those? What was it that drove uh, those decisions and those progressive policies to be implemented in the first place?
5: Okay, thank you once again. There are many factors, uh, politics being one of them, and uh, as a result of um, political upheaval some time back in 2007, we got a new, uh, the country uh, promulgated a new constitution in 2010, and this constitution has been very progressive in terms of uh, social protection, uh, protection of the minorities and marginalized in terms of health, our constitution talks about a right to health to every Kenyan. In fact, not just right to health, but right to the highest attainable standard of health. So it,
1: it's why, upon... why? Was it was it civil society advocacy? Was it you felt under pressure because the media were writing about this? Was it a particular individual who had a sort of progressive vision? It's really understand interesting to kind of understand the drivers.
5: I think it was all over, the, the community, that's uh, the Kenyans themselves, externally, the politicians themselves. So it's uh, many factors in play, and therefore we ended up having the constitution uh, that has sort of protected Kenyans and making sure that everything we do, we are guided by the tenants in the, in the constitution. Uh, we also, uh, with the previous governments, uh, there was a lot of efforts in developing the blueprint, the development blueprint for Kenya, the Kenya Vision 2030, that also has a social pillar where health falls and talks about also social protection for, for all Kenyans. So I would say the why is because uh, with education, more and more Kenyans are enlightened, fighting for their rights, wow. uh, the civil society organization. Uh, the partners, both global and and local donors. Uh, But as I said, even if we have education across in Kenya, the literacy level is quite high, but we have regional variations. Even in terms of health access and even as we talk about marginalization, there are regional variations because of historical issues.
1: Really interesting. And I think a little bit of that speaks to Rob's earlier question too. Um, Let me take... Let me take another round of questions at this point. Um, woman looking here. you've got two mics coming towards you. Mm-hmm. Hi, uh, Rachel Thompson from Chatham House. Um, my question is about data um, so from the discussion from the report um, and SDGs in general it's Data means quantitative, it means indicators, it means metrics. But what we've seen in the research and heard today, the stories from Kenya, from Zimbabwe, and um, just in Kenya, in Kenya we heard um, how you know, the, there's no hard
0: data, to, but we think that this is happening. Do you think there's any potential for qualitative data to be more mainstreamed as we try and tackle the, the leave, no behind, um, leave no one behind <coughs> issues? Um, or is that never going to happen and qualitative will always be peripheral
1: okay. for anyone on the panel? versus quant- thank you um, man in the front row um, yeah, you. the mics just behind you just
7: good morning uh, my name is Christopher
4: um, how long have you
7: been on for now? Um, I'm working uh, with a group of disabled people um, and the deaf community in Africa. So it's really interesting to hear uh, what all the speakers have been saying. Um, and it was interesting talking about um, female access to healthcare. Um, okay. And I've been sat here thinking um, a lot about the diversity of those communities. Um and thinking about whether there is any data about disabled people's access to healthcare care um, in these situations and in these counties as well. Um, my group, uh, we work um, in Burundi uh, in Central Africa. Um, and we've been working with the disabled community there. And there's lots of issues that disabled communities face um, in terms of access to healthcare. care. So uh, my question is broadly about um, disabled
0: access.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And there was a question.
7: Uh, I'm interested in the issue well, Sorry, of, can you introduce oh, sorry, yourself, yes, John? Yeah, uh, John Clark, <laughs> uh, the chair of an NGO called the Partnership for Transparency Fund. <clears throat> I'm interested in the point about de- uh, devolution that's come up. <clears throat> um, and I, I don't know if this experience is a general one, uh, but uh, in... Both Well, in my experience, when you have devolution, you often also weaken the oversight mechanisms. And I'm, I'm very pleased that um, uh, Isabella and others have talked about the importance of uh, increasing the sense of accountability for uh, those providing government services and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, but in my experience, when you devolve uh, the provision of those services, whereas... Uh, at, National levels, often the most articulate civil society (coughs) organisations in the capital city, uh, really have an an accurate hold on whether those resources are getting through. When the resources are decentralised, that can be very much diminished. And I'm wondering whether that's an experience that you've found uh, coming up. And uh, I I suppose what what if... What, if anything, could
1: be done about it? Excellent, thank you. I'll take just one more, your colleague sitting next to you. Hi,
4: I'm Amina Khan, I'm Senior Research Officer at the Growth, Poverty and Inequality Programme at ODI. My question is, so you've mentioned the bottlenecks around data financing, politics and normative bottlenecks. To what extent in this study have you mapped out how different actors are able... To cheat the system, so the particular loopholes that they identify within these bottlenecks Mm -hmm. and um, sort of move from there.
1: Interesting question. Thank you for that. Um, Let me start with the uh, data question. Can I come, Mamadou? Can I come to you? So, um, two questions on data. Um, Well, if you could certainly address the sort of qualitative versus quantitative point. I don't know if you know about access to. data on disability uh, and disability access to healthcare in Kenya, if you have a specific answer to that. I'm looking round for my colleague who led on the data piece of the study, he's not in the room, so we're, you are, you, it, it, we, we might have to come back with an answer on, on, on that. But Mamadou, if you could certainly address the first question on, you know, can, is it only, yeah, quality versus quantitative.
3: Just quickly, let me go to the second round of questions. There was a question on how would resource reduction affect the living one behind agenda in Kenya. And uh, I think what uh, was um, what is conclusively agreed upon is that the Addis Ababa agenda did not bring in more resources as was expected to support the 2030 agenda. So there is, um, right from the start, a sense that resources will not... Be enough to get to the 2030 uh, objectives but where, we, where a difference can be made is to better identify who is at risk of being left behind and uh, better um, designing programs that are effective and efficient as far as resource use is concerned to be able to address those on the qualitative data yes um, of all the studies that i know have used qualitative data to give more granularity to their quantitative data. And I think that culture will definitely continue as we try to monitor uh, progress on leaving no one behind. Quantitative data alone will not always be enough uh, to give us the full picture of who risks being left behind. And I see researchers are uh, increasingly bringing in a balance between qualitative and quantitative data to better um, give a picture of who is at risk of being left behind. The question on disability, um, yes, it is a big gap in data. There is a huge gap uh, concerning disabled persons and their access to health services. But then um, if we look at our study, the framework that was used, which is the composite coverage index, is virtually covering only women and children. So uh, we need to broaden the frameworks uh, for assessing uh, what is um, health coverage and uh, perhaps uh, giving more room to special populations like disabled persons, but also like IDPs, like refugees, you know, a whole Set of subpopulations who we just uh, gloss over when we do these kinds of um, studies.
1: Can I just ask, is there anyone in the room who's sufficiently familiar with either the Washington Group survey or the WHO survey on disability that can answer the question on whether it gives, uh, whether it includes metrics on, on access to healthcare? Does anyone... Can, can we answer that question in the room? We have a mic with gentlemen... Over here, please. Can you just introduce yourself, please?
8: My name is Moshe Rafushin. I'm Director of Policy of Influence of ADD International. Uh, Yes, uh, 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 if we really want to ensure the segregation of data by disability, then Washington Group questions, there's just six questionnaires, that is helpful. And they have health questions in them, access to health. Okay. Uh, access to health, it can be used for access to health also. But I don't know that it, which country are using that questionnaire support. But in Bangladesh, in Household Income Expenditure Survey, they use this questionnaire. And uh, although uh, census says that is uh, <coughs> on point five percent of, of total population of people with disabilities, but when they used uh, this uh, uh, Washington group question, it shows 9%, it's a big gap, it mm. more authentic data. And even some other countries, they used it for uh, a census to give uh, uh, a higher figure. And for we it is a strong recommendation from the disability community that the Washington uh, group questions will be used to for the data uh, uh, mm-hmm. indicator framework. and But uh, it can be used for access to health also. Okay. And Okay.
1: okay, thank you. That that's very helpful. Um, we we'll, we can come back if there's anything else to add um, on on whether we found anything else on access of disability disabled people's access to healthcare within the study. But let me come to Olivia. I mean, there's lots of those questions you might yes, want yeah. to, to answer, so you you go ahead, particularly I'm thinking the devolution uh, one. but I'm
4: going to start in, in the order they came,
1: but, okay. I, but I'll try to be quick. Um, on the
4: issue of the use of qualitative data, I think it's true it's really being used more to to, to bring meaning to, to numbers, and that's a, a positive uh, uh, direction of travel, let's say. I think in the health sector we might struggle a little bit more than in other sectors, particularly when... In many countries, uh, if we look at uh, health ministries, it's, there's very, you know, it's very biomedical. And so to get uh, people from a strong biomedical background to embrace qualitative data can be a challenge. Um, and let's, let's put it in those terms. <laughs> um, so so uh, progress, but probably not enough. Um, with the... Somebody mentioned using the the, CC, the composite coverage indicator as as our one of our indicators, and it's true. It's really it's primarily looking at services that uh, women and uh, young children access, and so that doesn't give us enough about disability. And I think it's something that as we discuss our methodology, um, we. Need to think about using more indicators. This was the first time we, that we that we did this, and I think we really recognise that we need a broader range of indicators than just uh, the the CCI and and the um and the DHS data that we looked at. Uh, yeah.
1: The
4: devolution question. So about the oversight mechanisms, wasn't it? Um, I think that we we observed in kenya and in in nepal that in in terms of uh tracking and whether or not that that's reduced in devolution i think we see quite a lot of promising initiatives with things like budget tracking that that do happen in in local levels but otherwise i I do think you're right and i'm sure romilly you have more thought on that i'm i'm not but in, in terms of things like community scorecards um, and, and those sorts of initiatives that, that, that you'll know about. But but fundamentally, yes, I think that it's, it's a risk that comes with devolution. If
1: you want yeah, to I-, I-,
0: I can't talk very much about sort of community initiatives I- in Kenya, but I do know that, uh, um, that in Kenya it's been more of a sort of big bang style uh, devolution. So I think it's actually still happening and filtering through. So I think it's actually, to be honest, a little bit early to be able to say in the long run, but I think there's been sort of coordination issues about sort of who's paying health workers' salaries and, and so on. Perhaps Isabella wants to say a little bit more about that. Yeah.
1: Did you want to speak for the last question on loopholes?
4: Uh, did, did we map the cheating of the system?
2: <laughs> is that right?
4: Um, so we certainly observed uh, cheating of the system. We didn't map it. I think that would be a, a useful thing to do, but we just didn't have the scope for something like that, and um, <laughs> go for it, <laughs> because it, it certainly is there.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, Isabella, let me bring you back in again on any—I mean, on any of those questions. But
5: okay, uh, thank you. I think I'll tackle the one of devolution first, uh, as one of the speakers there has said. It's a little a bit too early to say whether that will weaken or not. We are just about four years into devolution, uh, but there are a lot of tenets in the constitution about you know protecting. Uh, for example, devolution of any sector, whether it's health or the other sectors. Uh, The national level, uh, the national government, for example, in health is in charge of policy, standards and regulations, and also capacity building to the counties. And the two levels of government, uh, the counties and national government, are supposed to work on the basis of consensus, consultation, and and all that. Uh, Therefore, what we've seen uh, is that what the country has done, especially in the health sector, is to set up intergovernmental forum to solve any issues that may arise in the counties or also at the national level. So we have intergovernmental mechanisms to make sure that um, we move on together as a country because as much as we are forty seven uh, health systems, at the end of the day, if you are to report on SDGs, for example, we have to report on SDG's progress for Kenyans. So we have uh, put up mechanisms to make sure that we are working as as, as one country. We also have regulatory bodies um, that follows up on what is happening in the the counties. The role of supervision is also joint by the county and the national government, and we've been following on that. We also have accountability tools, and uh, Olivia has mentioned about the scorecard. For example, we have RMNCH scorecard, we have scorecards for health facilities that we are using jointly at the national level and also at the county level. And not to mention even forums for review of progress, like uh, the annual health summit, where we review our performance as counties and the national government. So despite the fact that there's that risk in the long run, I think in the short term we've put mechanisms in place to make sure that we, have, we reap the gains of uh, devolution. Uh, in terms of um, access to health care by persons living with disabilities, yes, I agree with the panelist and um, the plenary that uh, the data on that is a challenge, but I'll give examples of what ha- is happening in Kenya. Tied to financing the health insurance subsidies for social protection, uh, part of that money also goes to taking care of people living with disabilities. So our national insurance uh, uh, fund is also registering persons with a disability. We also have a unit within the Ministry of Health that is also charged with registering. But I would say mainly they do this for those in formal employment because of tax evasion, uh, uh, relief from tax and all that. So I think this is an area as countries and Kenya being one of them that we need to focus on to see what is happening to persons with disabilities. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you. I'm going to, um, Maita and Mamadou, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a chance to come back on any other of these questions that you want to add responses to, but I'm conscious of time. Let me just take maybe one or two more questions. I've neglected this side of the room a bit, and then we'll, <coughs> then we'll you can maybe roll your responses into one. I think from over here. i at the back.
4: Hi,
7: it's David Weeks from HI. Um, yep. Um, I just want to uh, make a couple of statements about the Washington group questions. And one is that uh, as a tool, it's still being developed. And we're working on uh, applying it to be able to be used uh, to identify hand, uh, disabilities in children. Yeah. Um, we have a project to, to apply it in humanitarian situations. Um, so there are, there's work to be done on the tool to actually make it useful. Um, the second thing is to say that um, there's an awful lot of work to be done with national statistical offices to understand how it can be used. Um, and to actually apply it within countries. Um, And I guess the third thing is that once you have good data on disability and age and uh, gender, that isn't the end of the story. And there is still quite a lot of work to be done uh, on intersectionality and teasing out the qualitative elements of of different contexts.
1: As I understand it, 42 countries, I think, are administering the survey. Thank you for that. Any... Uh, colleague over here.
8: Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, yes, I visited Kenya last year, and when I met government officials, they gave very good uh, uh, description of their government provisions for disabled people. I think uh, there is a legislative framework and provisions are very good, but when I talked with disabled people... They said most of the provisions are controlled by very influential, disabled people. It does not reach to the uh, poorest of the poor. there. So I think uh, uh, governance is a big issue for uh, uh, implementations of that provisions. And in Bangladesh, I also did a lot of uh, budget campaign to allocate resources in the local government. Uh, when they prepare the budget, that's fine. But when we practically see, wanted to see how many disabled people have got benefit from their budget, there's a big gap. Because when they need to reduce uh budget cut, they target that one. And i on thing, the last one. On question that is uh, for uh, community health services, are there participation of people with disabilities not uh, as only beneficiaries for running the, for the operations of that uh, That programs, for example, like uh, LGBT community, they're ignored to get their services, but they will be able to challenge those things only they are organized if there is organization of those people. Okay, so
1: that's that's the question, Uh, Olivia. I'm going to come back to each of the panelists and ask you because we've just got a couple of minutes left, ask you if there's. Any of the questions that you want to respond to that you haven't given a response to so far, that might include the last question as well. And then I'd also like you to give me, if you could, the next thing that you think needs to happen to advance the leave no one behind agenda in your context. What is the next? And if you could be really specific, so not you know there needs to be more political will a really specific concrete thing that you would like to see change that you think is going to advance this and for instance Isabella I don't want to force your hand but if you wanted to tell us about the Kenya Health Data Collaborative I'm sure everybody would be very interested to hear about that but you can you can you can give a different answer if you want to so let me start with um let me start with Olivia.
4: Okay, I'm going to answer the community health worker question first, and then I'm going to think about the other one while the others are. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
4: with community health worker programmes, of course they're different in every country, but there are <coughs> recommendations um, that are quite widely accepted, one of which is that community health workers should be selected by the communities in which they live. So in that sense, anyone is able to participate as a community health worker. So if you're talking about disabled people being that person, I don't see any reason why they, why they shouldn't be selected by their community to do that if they fit the other criteria that communities feel are uh, important to, to represent them. So I think, in theory, absolutely, yes. In reality, I have no idea To what extent that happens, I I just don't know.
1: Might be an interesting thing to look at. Okay, let me me come to you, Mamadou. Any of those questions that you just, answers you want to pick up on, or, you know, very, very specific, what next?
3: I think generally on data, uh, what we have learned, or what we are learning about um, (coughs) leave no one behind, is that it's requiring of policymakers to identify who is disproportionately deprived of the fruits of development. That's the leave no one behind population. And um, the techniques we have at the moment uh, seem to be moving towards um, a good blending of quantitative and qualitative data and I think the more we do that, uh, the better it will be to identify who is at risk of being left behind. Thank you. Uh, there, is also, there is also the issue of um, frameworks for identifying who is being left behind. In this study, we use the CCI, which is top of the notch at the moment, as far as health is concerned. But we should also realise that it is not comprehensive in terms of what are the health needs, of populations and subpopulations, so perhaps seeing an expansion, a little bit expansion of this um, of this framework for uh, exploring leave no one behind in the health sector will be very helpful in future.
1: You'll be happy Particularly
3: know- now, just a last point yeah. from the policy perspective. I know uh, we use and bandy the term universal health coverage generally. But what does it mean from one country to another is something quite uh, eclectic. Across Africa, there is what used to be called the Bamako Initiative, which covered what is called basic primary health care. And it, I think it will be helpful in going forward to build on that framework and introduce um, new areas of health care that it can cover for people who are at risk of being left behind.
1: Really interesting suggestions and, and a sort of nice mix of the sort of policy agenda and research agenda. And, um, and and on your second point, the frameworks, you'll be pleased to know that we're ODI, we're developing exactly that kind of framework for access to healthcare and leave no one behind it. We're, we're piloting it in Zimbabwe at the moment, but we're looking to it to expand that. So we'll be happy to share it with everyone when we've, when we've developed that. Um, Maita, can I come to you next? Um, you know, what specific thing would you like to see change in the Zimbabwean context? What's the sort of explicit next step for you?
2: Uh, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, I think if we are going to achieve the leave no one behind goal, we really need uh, qualitative data and evidence on LGBT populations. Also, we need support to get rid of a policy and legal framework that marginalises others. We need local Global platforms to speak and to be heard, and also global solidarity that put pressure on our governments to account for those that are left behind. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for that, Isabella. Same question to you, and again, if there's other questions you want to pick up on, briefly.
5: Okay. Thank you once again. I think the questions are well addressed. Uh, For me. I think the basic thing that we need to do is coordination of all stakeholders, including communities. If we are to move together and uh, understand what this leave no one behind is all about, then we have to work uh, together, communities, the governments, line ministries, uh, the partners, civil society, private sector, and all that. And what we've done as, as a country in terms of data, we have brought all players in, um, in health, especially those who work on data, to strengthen our statistics, to strengthen our data so that we use data for decision-making. And actually, uh, we just concluded our midterm review of our strategic plan, which, if time allowed, I would share what is happening in terms of um, the progress made in the counties and all that, and probably you can have another forum for that. But what I was driving at is that, we need all of us to work together so that we understand the agenda. We have one goal, one vision towards uh, meeting the SDGs and uh, moving towards universal uh, health coverage. Thank you.
1: Thank you. That's a, that's a lovely summary of where we are. You've done my job for me. But yeah. let me just come back finally to Olivia For you had a chance think to think of your uh, specific. To
4: lead on from that, it's mm-hmm. really pertinent, one goal and one vision. Because I think what we've heard about this morning is... Um, that there are some contradictions between what what we see as real commitments in, in the constitution and in policy and that kind of thing, but that what we've heard is that reaching the the unreached is expensive. So how do you balance that that commitment with a financial resource that may simply not be available? It's it's uh, yeah, balancing out like resolving the contradiction. Okay.
1: Okay. okay. Great. Well, I, I'd like to thank all the panellists so much for what was, I thought was a really rich discussion. And it, it really does feel like we're starting to kind of get under the skin and really understand... Um, I've used the word granular before, but I think it's the best word to use. You know, what's really going on and, and, and sort of a, an analysis of the problems and, and thinking through the way forward and the way through these problems that we're going to try and uh, achieve, leave no one behind. So I'd like you to all, if you, would, if you could, uh, join me in thanking all our panellists in the room and, and online. Thank you very much sir. Uh, just to remind you that there are laptops available if you want to play around with the maps and see some of the the interesting data work that's been done there's lunch outside here um, hopefully you knew about that but there's there, there's